Um, this morning, we're going to read Genesis 2, 15 to 24. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God used the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought, it, brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Let's pray for the message. Dear God, you are amazing, God. You are the creator of heaven and earth. And we just honor you and we worship you. And we ask that you would give us wisdom for understanding of your word. And that you would be with the preacher today. In your son's name, amen. Okay, thank you. You can be seated. <clears throat> really uh, encourage our women to um, seriously consider the things that we announced with, uh, if you're able to come in the morning to the small group at Pat's house, but also to uh, really consider the, uh, gospel, com the gospel, com gospel Coalition conference uh, that's coming up. It's really fantastic. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful time that my wife and I think some others of you have actually gotten to go to in Florida. It's, it's really good. I don't know if there's a cost, is there? We're, oh, okay. All right. So it's free. Well, and that's a lot cheaper than two thousand dollars going to Florida. So that's going to be—it's going to be really awesome. I saw someone named Kylie um, that signed up. I don't know who that is. Um, we'll see who who she is when she shows up. <laughs> we we um, are just so excited to uh, be continuing our study on the Book of Genesis. And if you're noticing, we are kind of going a little bit slow, kind of at a snail's pace right now. Getting through the first three chapters is probably going to be the most laborious, um, but that's probably more of an ugly word than I wanted to use, but um, it's, it's just, it's really packed. It's like that concentrate juice that you need to mix with, with water, and it's just really, um, really uh, important information, and um, going through the book of Genesis is foundational to understanding the, the whole entire Bible. Why, why is the Bible even here? Why did God speak to us? Why did Jesus come and die for our sins? Everything is explained very well in the book of Genesis. And right now, we're kind of camping out a little bit in the passage that talks about marriage. And we're going to move on from marriage a little bit, um, and we're going to take a break from it, and then come back to it later on in Genesis chapter 3. Right now, we have an ideal picture of what marriage is supposed to look like without two sinners in the marriage. 
But in Genesis 3, we, we will open up the book to what you and I know today as the traditional fallen marriage, the broken marriage. The marriage doesn't, that doesn't seem so idealistic, um, so happy all the time, um, and so, so perfect and righteous and holy. What it was meant to be is not what we realize. So I just want to ask you, to, I, want, I want to ask you to remember to consider that some of what we see here um, is an ideal picture of what marriage should have been without sin, what it was intended to be. And it's not as if we can't experience the joys of um, marriage in, in a restored sense under the redemption that we find in Christ, but we have to look at it from a little bit different of an angle uh, in understanding the gospel, and we're going to get to that um, later on. But it's been really exciting to uh, talk about marriage um, and to discuss this. It's been challenging for me personally um, because I am married, and believe it or not, I have imperfections, and um, I fail, and I can be kind of a twerp to my wife. Um, I need to apologize to her almost daily. Um, <laughs> and and um, it's been encouraging for me to remember just these principles. And kind of coincidentally, um, this really wasn't planned. We, we sort of just started seeing some marriage small groups popping up on their own, like with uh, Pat and uh, Tammy and Mark. They meet on, on Thursday nights, and they're, they're doing a similar marriage study in Fall River. And um, th these things are just kind of popped up on their own. And sometimes we have good ideas, and sometimes God has good ideas, and he gives them to us without us even really thinking about them. So obviously the Lord is leading our church to consider these things um, for, for his purposes and for his reason. And what an amazing quote that Pat gave. A lot of times we talk about marriage, and if you're single, you might check out. If you're divorced, you might check out. Whatever, things like this might happen. But it's true that we need a, a proper understanding of it as single people to not, to not idolize it, to, not put, to, to put, a put to a necessity on it for us to possess in our lives. Or maybe you've been through a bad marriage, and now you're bitter towards it, and you're just thinking that it was a waste of time and you're never going to get married again and how do you, how do you process all of these different things it's important it's a it's an important discussion for married people for single people um, marriage believe it or not I think is still um, highly esteemed in our country and the reason for that the reason I know that is because people still get married um, if it weren't highly esteemed you could say well lots of people get divorced it's not so highly esteemed and I think I think there's a measure of truth to that, but it's still present. It's still an active institution. Even in our modern, postmodern world, um, people are still doing this thing called marriage. Um, and it's kind of peculiar, isn't it, um, that we still do that um, in, our, in our modern culture, but yet we do. Now, if you've been around uh, evangelical Christians at all, if you're not an evangelical Christian, you know, you might call it, you might have heard of them referred to as born-again Christians or uh, people like this, you know, like, if you've been around evangelical, born-again Christians long enough, um, you probably have heard a sermon or two about vision, right? So if, if you've been a Christian for, for a little bit of time, how many people have ever heard a church about vision? Yes, okay. You know, the ones that didn't raise your hand that come to this church, I just preached one, so you obviously weren't listening. Um, <laughs> or you're not listening right now. Um, You've probably heard a sermon or two or 900 about, about vision. Um, you've, taught, you've, you've heard me talk about this. You might have gone to places in the Old Testament like Nehemiah. We just preached a whole sermon series on Nehemiah. Um, the the, he's the shortest prophet, you know, because he was only knee-high. Okay. Um, maybe Isaiah rings a bell. Isaiah's vision in chapter 6 
right? He sees God, and it's amazing. He purges his lips and commissions him to go speak the gospel to Israel. Um, oh, 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 of course, let's not forget that classic text that's almost always serving as a backdrop to sermons on vision. Where there is no vision, the people perish, right? Those classic iconic words from King Solomon who gives us his wisdom in the book of Proverbs. So for, for Christians, if you're a Christian, and you haven't gotten this yet, vision is a virtue, right? We love vision. We talk about vision. We need to have vision. If we don't have it, we're going to die, right? Like we need vision. So it's a virtue. If we lack it, like I said, there's a certain death that's going to come to our local church. And by vision, what do we mean by vision? That's important. I think a lot of times what we mean um, is that by leaders or church leaders or whatnot, what they mean by is the ability to see something that's not there and create it over time. Like, I think this is what we should be doing, and everyone follow me kind of thing, because we need to create this thing. And that's kind of so, and, and we have positive, virtuous, holy motivations in the process, because we're doing this, hopefully, for God's glory for his kingdom to spread throughout the world. So that's kind of like, in a nutshell, some of what you might have heard about vision. And that's why it really troubled me recently. I was reading a book called Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, was a very brave Christian. He was a very brilliant theological, biblical scholar who stood up to Adolf Hitler, and it cost him his life. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, by, by no stretch of the imagination or exaggeration, is a hero in Christendom. Um, that's why it's troubled me recently when I read in his book, page 27, from Life Together, he says this, God hates visionary dreaming. What? No, this has got to be where maybe he was wrong, theologically. God hates that do you do you have you real do you realize how many sermons I've heard about vision? God hates visionary dreaming. This is the one thing everyone's wrong about something, right? You know, theologically, this is where we tattoo our vision statements to our evangelical arms, right? That that's what we do in the church. If he's right, it changes everything. It changes the way we live our Christian lives. It changes the way we do church. It changes everything if he's right. But for Bonhoeffer, the dreamer is, quote, proud and pretentious. He says the dreamer is the man who fashions a visionary ideal. Now listen to these words. He fashions a visionary ideal, demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands. He sets up his own law and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. He stands adamant, a living reproach to all others in the circle of brethren. He acts as if he is the creator, as if his dream binds them together. When things don't go his way, he calls the effort a failure. When his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community as responsible and beginning to smash, he says. So he, become the visionary, becomes the accuser of the brethren, then the accuser of God, and then finally, the despairing accuser of himself. Isn't that incredible? 
What Bonhoeffer means, I think, about his negative take on the visionary dreamer is that oftentimes when we dream, when we have vision, it is not thy will be done, it is my will be done. Oftentimes we are very little interested in what God has decided to do in this world and we are more interested in what we want. You see? That's what he's getting at. He's not saying that it's wrong or not virtuous to have an idea for the Lord and to bring it to him and to serve him through that capacity, but to hold it loosely, to ask him what he wants us to be doing. To hold all of our ideas, all of, all of our visions, and all of our dreams with open palms, trusting that God will do his will and not my will. See? The, the vision in Scripture that brings life is God's revelation to us, his creature. It's seeing what God has commanded, believing his word, and obeying him. You see? That means, very simply, I am not the visionary. You are not the visionary. God is. And we simply see what he sees and obey him. It's as simple as that. That means you don't follow my vision, you follow God's vision. You don't follow your vision, you follow God's. Now, I know some, this might seem like semantics, but it's actually a lot more clear than we might think. God is the visionary. God is the creator. We are the created. You see? We, don't, we create nothing. God creates everything. And wow, the implications of this? Our worth is not determined by what we create, but by our relationship with the Creator. God does not stand in judgment over us because we built a church or didn't. He stands in judgment over us through Christ and declares us beloved in spite of our actions. We build nothing. Jesus builds the church. Did you know that? Jesus said, I will build my church. He builds it. We simply follow him. Amen? We are faithful to the word that he has spoken. God has not called us to be creators. He has called us to be faithful. The simple principle is built into the heart of what it means to be in right relationship with God. In other words, we don't decide who God is. We don't decide what we want him to be. He is who he is, and we are who he says we are. See? That's how we are in right relationship with our God, by submitting to his authority, to trusting his good kindness, that he's the creator and we are the created. So what does this have to do with marriage? Oh, everything. Because we all have a vision of marriage, an idea of what we think it's supposed to be, rather than asking God, what he has decided it would be and what our roles are in it, we come into it with expectations. We come into it with demands. The simple principle is built in because it's built into our relationship with God. It's also built into the definition, the purpose, the power of marriage itself because if, if marriage is supposed to mirror what our relationship with God is supposed to be like, then it would ser- I would serve to assume that we, we should take this principle into marriage. Now, last week, we talked about God's covenant with Adam and Eve, if you recall. 
a covenant being an elective family-like relationship of obligation established under divine sanction. Now that's the definition. I believe we have a slide for that. A covenant being an elective family-life relationship of obligation established under divine sanction. That's God's vision for marriage. That's what marriage is. That's what he has defined it to be. If we take anything else into marriage, it starts to fall apart. It starts to crumble around us. Covenants are what marriages are. A marriage in scripture is a covenant. And that is the definition of a covenant. We saw a little bit, if you recall, what is a, what is a covenant structure? What, what is a covenant besides that? What does it look like? Well, we have a title of a covenant. That introduces the two people involved. God makes a covenant with Adam in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. He makes a promise, a family-like relationship, a marital type of union is existing between God and man. Isn't that incredible? That God created us to have a marital type of union with him. That that's the kind of intimate love and compassion that he has on human beings. And the reason why is because the Bible says he created humanity in his image. So he doesn't have that kind of covenant relationship with pigs or with cows or even with stars or trees. So here is this covenant, this promise God is making with Adam. He's introducing himself in the title. It's God and Adam. There's a history normally in, uh, in, in a covenant. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. There's a history. God makes a covenant with Israel, and he's letting him know the history here is God is giving Adam life. He's creating him in his image. He gives him rule over all creation. And he gives him one stipulation. He says, do not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, or there are curses Here's the bad things that are going to happen to you if you break this covenant. You will surely die, Adam. In other words, you will be separated from the covenant relationship that you had with me in your innocence. The blessing, if you obey this covenant, is that you will remain in right relationship with your God, with your creator. Now, there's always some kind of oath as well um, that's usually done in a covenant. And by the way, that's the marriage to Eve um, in God's covenant with Adam. Now, the oath, let's talk about that for a minute just to remind you. The oath is some kind of ritual. It's much like communion that we take at church. It's a, it's a physical symbol of something that's depicting something happening in the covenant. The oath depicts symbolically the curse of separation or the blessing of union. So it can depict a curse or a blessing. That's why when we take communion, the curse, right, it's depicting the broken body of Christ. He took the curse of our, we were covenantly unfaithful, and the result of that was the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. So it's depicting the curse of sin every time we take the Lord's Supper. Okay, The ratifying oath that God makes with, with Adam is the, the creation of Eve and his marriage to him. This means that Adam's marriage to Eve was supposed to symbolize the union that God wanted with humanity. Marriage was created so that we would be able to see what it is that God wants with us. Isn't that incredible? That's what your marriage is for. That's absolutely what it's for. The, the, and, and, I'm, and I'm talking, by the way, in an ideal sense. We know that marriages can fall apart. But if we're talking about a healthy marriage where two people love and cherish each other, that's what God wants with you. 
So Adam being created in the image of God, likewise, because he's an imitator of God, and God is a covenant maker, now Adam also is a covenant maker. You see? So he enters into covenant with Eve. Marital covenant as the imitator of God. It's really interesting. If you look through the book of Genesis, how Adam and Eve imitate God. God creates. And what do Adam and Eve do? They procreate. God names Adam. And Adam names the animals. He even names Eve, his wife. God rules over the creation, all of creation. And he commissions Adam to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over all of the earth and its creatures. So humankind, by nature is supposed to imitate our good God, his, create, his creative power, right? We can, we can pro- procreate and we can create works of art and houses and all these different things that we do. We name, we, we, name, we, we rule over the creation. God makes a covenant. Likewise, Adam makes a covenant. Now, some people have suggested that Adam wasn't really making a covenant with Eve here. And the reason they say that is there's various reasons, but they say that we don't see the word covenant in Genesis chapter 2. Um, we don't see an oath happening between Adam and Eve. What's the symbol? Um, and number three, um, that some people have suggested that marriage in the Bible in general isn't called a covenant. All these things are actually untrue. I don't know how people can say these things, but we're going to get to that in a moment. In spite of these objections, we see Adam entering into a covenant with Eve. And it's mirroring, it's reflecting the covenant God has made with Adam. So that being the case, there's really tremendous implications to what marriage is. Its definition, its purpose, its power. So let's talk about this. Adam and Eve's marital covenant and the implications of it. The first thing I want to observe here is that just because the structure and the elements of a covenant, like the title, you remember all this? Just because those are not present, um, excuse me, just because the word covenant is not present in Genesis chapter 2 doesn't mean it's not a covenant. And we know that it is because of the structure of a covenant. All the elements are present in Genesis chapter 2. Now, just just by way of example, um, if you've ever written an email, you might not put in the subject line, this is an email. Like, you know people are going to figure that out based on the structure and the context, right? If you, write, if you do, like, the old-fashioned way, you write yourself a handwritten letter to somebody, you don't write on the top, this is a letter. You don't do that because of the structure. It's good. They're going to know what it is right when, right when it comes in the mail. We would expect them to know based on the format, and that's exactly what we see here in Genesis chapter 2. We see the elements of a co- covenant being drawn out. Um, Number two, marriage in general is understood as a covenant in the Bible. Malachi chapter 2 says, She is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. So it says very clearly right there, She is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Marriage is a covenant in Scripture. Proverbs chapter 2, verses 16 through 17. So you will be be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. The companion of her youth, her husband, and forgets the covenant she made with God in her marriage with him. Ezekiel chapter 16 is a book in the Old Testament. It's, a very, it's actually really sobering and difficult to read. Um, but Ezekiel chapter 16 is an extended uh, analogy 
of God marrying Israel. Right? It talks about, I found you, I dressed you, I clothed you, and we, we married and we wed. It's an extended analogy in, of how Israel um, turns um, to other gods and committed adultery with other idols, right? And this is what we see. And all of this in Ezekiel is called their covenant with God. So over and over again, marriage is talked about in Scripture as a covenant. So Adam, number three, does indeed make a covenant with Eve. He makes a covenant with Eve. And now this is where we're going we're gonna to get, hopefully, into the really applicational parts of what marriage is defined to be in Scripture and why it's important for us as married or potentially married people. Number one, Adam says, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Verse 23. See this right here. So here begins Adam's covenant with Eve. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Now, who is Adam talking to in this? You might think Eve, but if it was Eve, wouldn't Adam be saying, you are now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh? He doesn't say you because he's not talking to Eve. He's talking to God. This is now bone of my bones, God. This is now flesh of my flesh. He's talking to God. Now, why is he talking to God when he's marrying Eve? If this is a deal between them two, then what does it have to do with God? Well, a covenant is a family-like relationship of obligation established under divine sanction. It's not just a promise you make to another person. It's a promise you make to God himself. Isn't that interesting? When you enter into a marriage covenant, whether you've realized this or not, whether you knew it or not, you are entering into a covenant with God, a promise you are making to God. In traditional uh, Christian weddings, how many people have been to a wedding? Come on. We all have, right? How many people have not? You've never been to one single wedding. Really? Is that true? Well, any wedding, Christian or not. Yeah, see, we've all been to a wedding. Okay. So at a wedding, you might have noticed that there are, there are two separate, there are a lot of elements to, to weddings nowadays, but usually in a traditional wedding, you're going to have two separate um, parts to a traditional wedding. You're going to have something called a declaration of consent and vows, wedding vows. Now, we all know what the vows are, but you might not have heard of this, this language, unless you're a pastor, called the declaration of consent. The declaration of consent is traditionally the pastor is asking the bride and groom, do you take this woman? To be your lawfully wedded wife? I do. And they're facing the pastor. They're talking to him. Do you take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband? I do. To love and to cherish? I do, right? You guys know the I do's? Well, that's called a declaration of consent. Why are they looking at the pastor and not each other? Because at the vows, they turn towards each other. And the reason for it is the symbolism in this is that the pastor is almost acting as if he is representing God. Right? So in other words, it's as if God is asking them, do you, do you promise to do this? And you say, God, yes, I do. Now, I know I'm not God, in spite of popular belief. I'm not him. But it's, it's, it's symbolism. Right? It's a symbol that these two are making a promise before God himself to be loyal and faithful to each other. That's the declaration. The, in the vows, they turn to each other, and they pretty much repeat almost the same exact thing. This is a little redundant, but now they're promising each other. They promise God, and then they promise each other. 
Adam here is addressing God. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And if I can say this in, in other words, he's saying, God, I promise you to treat her as one with myself, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. I promise to treat her as if she is me, to prioritize her over every other created thing. Isn't this incredible? Now remember, human marriage, just remember this. If you're not married and you think, oh, this is irrelevant to me, just remember, human marriage is an analogy to what God wants with us. So what does this mean? God is saying to you, if you know him and you love him, you are bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh till death do us part. And you know, oh, by the way, if you're a Christian, you will never die. God is making an eternal pledge of love and union and intimacy with you by grace, sinners undeserved, and he won't divorce you. Isn't that incredible? Oh, you can mess up, you can fall on your face, you can be a jerk, you can commit adultery towards God like Ezekiel chapter 16 Israel did, and God will forgive you and die for you and love you and bring you back. Wow! Unbelievable. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He's declaring something to God, a declaration of con consent. Now, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, Israel comes to David and says, we are your flesh and blood. Now, God, God already knows that Eve is bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. God made Eve. So God, Adam is informing God. He is declaring something to God, just like the men of Israel to David. When they said, we are flesh, your flesh and blood, David knew that already. They were not informing him, but rather announcing allegiance, making a promise. Adam is saying here, God, hold me accountable for the covenant I make with Eve. Just as you made a covenant with me, a covenant of love, now I'm making a covenant of love with Eve. Now these have tremendous implications. Let's talk about these. Number one, we kind of got at these already. <clears throat> the implication of this promise first is that we are going to treat our spouse as we would treat ourselves. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Now, Paul, a New Testament writer, says the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his body, but yields it to his wife. This is basically saying she is him and he is her. Right? The primal urge to satisfy personal desire. How many people right now, you just want some chocolate cake, right? You didn't until I said it. Mark always wants chocolate cake. We have this kind of primal urge to satisfy desires that we have, right? If you really start wanting chocolate cake enough, you're going to go after it. You're going to get it. You are going to indulge, right? Or pizza. I'm making you all hungry. You're not listening to me anymore. So we have this primal urge to please ourselves, to keep ourselves safe. We lock our doors at night. We don't drive 150 miles an hour down the highway. We, we, we take checks and balances. We want to keep ourselves safe. There's this almost built-in human self-preservation that is, isn't even sinful, by the way. There's a, there's a kind of, I guess, selfishness that isn't wrong. You clothed yourself today. That was a selfish move, but you're supposed to. 
so that you don't freeze and insult everyone on the street, right? So when in marriage, the primal urge to satisfy your desires transfers, because she is you, transfers to her. You please yourself by pleasing your spouse. If this is true, if you are one, then your happiness depends on how you love your spouse and prioritize your spouse. If you are truly bone of your bones and flesh, you can say, oh, I don't believe any of this. Well, just try it out. Resist it. Put yourself first in marriage. It will bite back. This is true because it's true. Not because I'm saying it is, but because God created, created this. Another place makes this clear, Ephesians chapter 5. He who loves his wife loves himself. He who loves his wife loves himself. If you, so this, this is what this means in marriage. If you're really going to be selfish and self-serving, then put your wife first. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? That's what this is saying. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for, the bo- for their body just, just as Christ does the church. Now, what is the negative implication here? If you hurt your spouse, you hurt yourself. The prior- our priority and function in marriage is to first serve the other, and in so doing, we serve ourselves. Isn't that incredible? If you hurt your spouse you hurt you. If you love your spouse, you love you. The second implication of this promise is the permanence of the covenant. The permanence of the covenant. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. How many people plan on carrying their arms with them to the grave? None of you has a plan to remove your legs, I would assume. Right? You just kind of expect that till death do you part with your limbs. At that point, whatever. <laughs> right? Use them for science. You can be put on display at the Boston Museum. Doesn't matter. I'm dead. You, you can do all sorts. Right? So till death do you part. If, if scripture is saying this is now bone of my bones and flesh of marriage is a union of two. But you, your body is not your own but your wife's. Your wife's body is not her own, but her husband's. If this is true, till death do us part. We will always, will you always take you with you everywhere you go until death? Of course. Will you not always care for and nurture your own health until death? Of course. Well, if your spouse is flesh of your flesh, will you not likewise care for them as you would yourself? 1 Corinthians chapter 7. To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. You see, friends, if we do separate from an arm, it's a bad day. Wouldn't you think? That's, that is a trauma. It, it can happen, and sometimes it should happen. We get sick or something's going on in our bodies and we need, we need to, it needs to come off. But even if that's the best choice, it's not the optimal choice, right? The optimal choice is health. To the married, I give this command that I, the Lord, a wife must not separate from her husband. Friends, 
I, I just want to pause here for a moment and just remind us as we speak these things. I know none of this is meant to guilt anybody for, for a past decision, maybe a wrong decision that you made. Maybe it was outside of your control, right? And you, you were in a marriage and you wanted it to stay intact. Friends, this is not meant to impose guilt, for by grace you have been saved through faith. God can raise the dead, and he has raised the dead. He offers you forgiveness, and nothing that you have done should ever for a moment leave you guilty. You are a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have, are, are made new. I simply say this to remind us of the fact, though, that when we're going through these things, when we approach marriage, that the way we approach it will either bring us life or death. And I hope that you, under, you all understand that. To separate from uh, your husband or wife would, would be a form of death since you are so united. And friends, I know that some people in this room have gone through divorce. And if you sat down and talked with those pers- people, I think they probably would describe it just like that. Something died. And it wasn't good. And it wasn't supposed to be like that. We just kind of know that. It doesn't mean that there's not hope. It doesn't mean that there isn't redemption for you. But the reality is something died. There's a third implication, and that's the power of marriage. There's nothing in this world that can lift you up or take you down like marriage. Isn't that true? Dr. Keller writes this, a a book we already mentioned. Marriage has the power to set the course of your life as a whole. If your marriage is strong, even if all the circumstances in your life around you are filled with trouble and weakness, it won't matter. You will be able to move out into the world in strength. However, if your marriage is weak, even if all the circumstances in your life around you are marked by success and strength, it won't matter. You will move out into the world in weakness. Isn't that amazing? There is a power that is in marriage. We can resist this, but it will bite us back. It has that kind of power. There is a number two, a second part of this covenant that Adam makes with Eve and some other implications. Adam names Eve in verse 23. Adam names Eve. Now, this is not degrading. Some people have suggested this is degrading. We name children. So it's... it's, some people have suggested that, you see, this is kind of this regressive, sexist kind of, you know, paternal, you know, thing that's happening in the Bible. It's actually not degrading at all toward women. Did you know that Hagar, in Genesis chapter 16, names God? (laughs) Who's better than God? Nobody. It's not degrading, okay? It's a standard covenant-making practice, the changing of names, Abram's name is changed to Abraham, you remember, when he comes into covenant with God. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. In the Old Testament, there are these figures. They had had a name. God shows up and says, I'm choosing you because I love you, and their name changes. We still do this, by the way, today in marriage. Believe it or not, a lot of people still do this. They, They get their names changed. And it's not degrading. It's simply a symbol of a new condition of life because there's a new relationship, a new loyalty, you see? There is a new relationship and a new loyalty. We don't define marriage 
The marriage defines us. That's what this means. And this is why I started with this idea about vision. We don't, dis- we don't define marriage. The marriage defines us. We change. Something about us change. We have to submit to it or it will bite us back. We don't have our own version and vision for marriage. God in marriage has a vision and a purpose for us in it. That unless we submit to it, we will never know the joy of marriage. To create our own version and vision of marriage makes us, like what Bonhoeffer said, proud and pretentious. I'm going to change that quote a little bit around that we read in the beginning from Bonhoeffer. It makes us, if we take this into marriage, if we redefine it, if we say this is what marriage is going to be and not what God says it is, we demand that our vision be realized in marriage. We enter in with demands. We set up our own laws in marriage. And we judge the marriage accordingly. We act as if we are the creators of marriage, as if our dreams bind us together. And when things don't go our way, we call the marriage a failure. When the ideal picture is destroyed, we see the marriage destroyed. So, we become first an accuser of our spouse, then God, and then ourselves. Isn't that so true, what we do? We approach marriage based on me and not on God. Why am I doing this? What am I getting out of this? How am I being treated? That's the standard. That's the me marriage. That's the different marriage that God never intended. The opposite of what God calls us to in relationship with him and therefore the opposite of what he calls us to in relationship with our spouse. And this leads us, I think, to the third implication of the covenant of marriage. In verse 24, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and they shall be called one flesh. They shall become one flesh. Leave and cleave. You guys have heard this expression? Leave and cleave. In our relationship with God, we are to leave every loyalty, every false god, everything that we trust, and trust him alone. You shall have no other gods but me. Right? You shall leave, metaphorically, your father and your mother. Jesus said, if you do not hate your father and your mother, you cannot follow me. Because we need to leave all of other devotions, all other false gods, and cleave to the one God who is our only God. See? So there's a leaving and a cleaving standard in making covenants to leave false idols, to cleave to only God himself, the only one true God. We're not to define God for ourselves, announce what we think God should be and what we think we should be and what we should do, but rather we simply receive his revelation of himself to us, we believe it, we obey it, and we follow him. We don't get to decide what we want to be. We are whom God has made us to be. You see, that is the exact opposite of what we're told today. We define ourselves. 
in our culture, right? I am who I, I decide who I am. No one has the right to tell me who I am. I am who I am. But we don't, we, we, we fail to remember that God is the visionary. God is the creator. He is the one who made us. So we don't get to decide these things. Now this, this language, you shall leave your father and mother, if you look at this in terms and context of a marriage, you shall leave your father and mother. This is radical in the ancient Near East. The husband's, is the man is leaving his father and mother and going to the woman. Everywhere in the ancient Near East, it was the exact opposite. This was entirely unique in the nation of Israel. Every other culture at this time, the onus would have been on the woman to leave her home. But Adam mirrors God. What does God do with us to marry us? What does he do? He sends his son Jesus, takes on flesh, comes to the earth to, to rescue us. See, he has to come to us. We can't come to him. We're sinners. So he comes to us. So Adam, imitating God, goes to the wife, to the bride, and, and loves her and makes a promise with her and is covenantly faithful to her. Isn't that incredible? What's the call to us then as married people? To take the first step of love. To, stay, to, to, to forgive, to sacrifice, to go to them and not wait for them to come to us. You see? Oh, we're so, we're so proud. I'll never, I'm, you don't know, and I'll never do that. But w- what we have here in this model is God coming to us to save us, Adam going to Eve. Adam mirrors God um, who takes initiative in loving humanity. In the, in the ancient Near East, there's no, there's no higher loyalty than children to parents. It was just the reality in their world. Even in the Old Testament, there is a high priority of children honoring their parents. According to Moses, though, he writes in the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, these are second to your wife. It even says, when a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. Isn't that incredible? There's a war going on. I get married and I get to stay home for a year and be happy with my wife. Isn't that incredible? That's what it says. Protecting life and property comes second to the marriage relationship. This is astonishing reversal of what the culture demanded at the time. You know what the culture was like at the time? Do you remember the story of Queen Esther? Right in the Old Testament, the, the the norm, the standard was a domineering type of relationship of man over woman, like Xerxes over Vashti. In the very beginning of Esther, Vashti does something kind of rude to him. He doesn't like it. So what does he do? He deals with her, doesn't he? He says, "I want you to dance naked for me in front of my friends." <laughs> the nerve, men, right? Like so. He says this. He says this, and she's like, no way. So he's like, okay, you're dead, right? Because women are going to stop, stop disobeying their husbands now. That's what it says in the Bible. That was, that was the ancient Near Eastern cultural demand on husband and wife. But you know what the Bible says? No. The man shall leave her, his house and go to the woman. Isn't that incredible? There's, a, there's an incredible um, implication here on the priority of marriage. If you, if you place any other relationship before your marriage, your marriage is going to suffer and die. If you place a friend, 
a child, a parent. That's the image here. You leave your parents. You leave the authority of your old home. You leave mom and dad there. How many, how many marriages have suffered because your husband or your wife can't do that? They trust the advice of their parents more than their husband or wife. The opinion of their parents more than their husband or wife. They care more for their parents than they do their husband or wife. Now, the Bible doesn't say to dishonor your parents, that you can't go to them for advice or counsel, that you be rude to them. But the point is there is a new structure that takes over, which was a completely foreign concept in the ancient Near East. We give up our rights because we belong to someone else. The two shall become one. So not only is there a priority in marriage, in leaving all other devotion and prioritizing that new devotion, the two shall become one. You know what we do? We often say, the two shall become me. Right? You become like me. Because I don't like that stuff. I don't like the way you do dishes. I don't like the TV shows you like. I don't like where you like to vacation. Right? So you become more like me, and then we'll get along. Isn't that true? You say, no one would ever approach marriage saying that. But over time, that's what it becomes like. You start internally being like, you know what? Mm -mm. You're not sacrificial anymore. It becomes, the two shall become me. Here is a new, unified, intimate relationship. It is no longer my desires versus your desires, but the one desire of the marriage. We give up all our rights because we now belong to someone else. And there is a high priority of marriage in this, and that is the implication. If you place any other relationship before your marriage, your marriage will suffer and die. Your children are not more important than your spouse. Your parents are not more important than your spouse. Your friendships are not more important than your spouse. That's what this means. The two shall become one. And this is why some have suggested that the reason why traditional wedding vows don't announce how you feel, but rather they announce how you will treat each other. If you look at tradition, traditional wedding vows, you know, I just, I just love you. That's a feeling, right? You're expressing emotion. It doesn't say that, it doesn't say that in a vow. It says, I will love you. You're making a deal with your future self. You know, my 10-year version from now, I'm making a deal with him that day saying that in that moment, 10 years from now, even if things are going bad, even if I'm getting sick or she's getting sick, I'm going to love her. I'm going to cherish her. I'm going to protect her. You see? I promise to love you in good times and in bad times. You're making a deal with your future you to remain faithful to your covenant promise. And isn't that incredible? Because just remember, you say, oh, I'm not married. Okay, this is all nice and flowery and stuff. But like, what does this have to do with me? God is making a deal with his future him. God doesn't change. And he promises to love you, to cherish you, to honor and keep you. You see? Isn't that incredible? You see, the spouse that you potentially love sitting on your side is meant to mirror to you what God wants with you. Friend, you're made in his image. God created you to be in a radically loving relationship with him. Would you come to him? Would you trust him? There is a covenant waiting for you with God himself, giving you a new relationship with him. 
And friends, that's why David says in Psalm 119, the law of the Lord is good. It's like honey. It's like gold. Because you can't appreciate God's law. You can't lovingly obey it until you love him, until he loves you. See? If you don't love each other in marriage, marriage vows are an incredible burden, aren't they? They make you angry. They make you frustrated. Friends, why do you think you hate God's law? Why do you think you're mad at the fact that, you know, God says you can't do this or that, or it seems oppressive or whatever the word? Well, if, if you loved him, then they would be life-giving to you. You see, when you love your spouse, it's a joy to be with her alone and not other women. See? That rule, that ten command, tenth commandment in marriage is a delight because you love her and she loves you. You see, friends, come to God. The covenant relationship with you, with, for you is available. Trust him. Accept the invitation. Believe the proposal. He's there for you and loves you. The covenant, the new relationship requires that we leave, that we cleave to God himself, that we leave other relational priorities. You see, if our spouse is the most important person and we are actually in covenant with God, then what does that mean? God is our, our greatest priority in life. The Bible holds a radical priority on marriage. It's supposed to image man's relationship with God. Marriage is to one woman or one man forever. Our spouse is to be our priority, not our moms or our dads or our jobs, right? Leadership in marriage for men is service to our wives. It's putting them first, loving them, looking out for their greatest good. The marriage couple is renamed. You have left your home. You are new in that relationship. And there is no more exclusive self-interest but mutual selflessness. The couple is one unit, one body. And all of these imply tremendous self-sacrifice, a, tr a tremendous surrender of the will for the good of the other person. And that's, by the way, why God creates marriage to compare us, our relationship to him. We are to worship him alone forever. God is our first priority over every other devotion. God leads us by sacrificing his good for us. And we are given a new name in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this morning. God, we confess to you, Lord, that we are not the groom that we should be. We often think of ourselves first. I pray, Lord, that we would learn by your model to love radically the spouse that you've provided. And God, I pray, Lord, that we would know the grace and forgiveness that you provide in all situations, even in the messes that we make. God, you love us still, and you offer us grace. And you can redeem all, all things to your glory. God, I pray, Lord, this morning that if we don't know the kind of covenant relationship with you that you desire with us, that we would come by faith in Jesus Christ. I pray, God, that we would repent of our sins and turn from them to trust that you are good and holy and die. you sent your son Jesus, who is God in the flesh, to die for us in our place 
so that you might present to yourself the church holy and without blame. And friends, if that's you, you can believe in Jesus Christ right now and have your name changed. Come to Christ, friends. Cry out to God, God, I'm a sinner. Save me. You created me in your image and desired a love relationship with me, but I turned from you and I worshiped everything but you. Forgive me. I trust that Jesus died the death I deserved, the separation, the curse, so that I might be made clean and presented to you without blame as your bride. Friends, if that's your heart this morning and your heart is turning to the Lord like this, you are secure in Christ and you have a new name. And would you rejoice with me about that and talk to me after church? God, we love you. Thank you, God, for this morning as we transition into communion. Thank you, God, for what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so now we're going to transition to our time of communion. We're told in the Bible to always participate in the Lord's Supper while we wait for his return. The bridegroom is coming for his bride. Isn't that, isn't that great? Jesus Christ right now in, in the Gospel of John says, is preparing a place for us, his bride, in heaven. <clears throat> and Jesus Christ is coming back for us. We do this to remember the fact that the only reason he is coming back for us is because he died for us. His blood was shed for us. His body was broken for us. This is the covenant ratifying oath. It's a symbol of what Jesus did for us on the cross. His body was broken. His blood was shed so ours never would have to be. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes once more. Let's take a moment to confess any sin, to reflect on these promises before we um, take communion together. God, how we love you and thank you and rejoice in the words of Christ. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Amen.
just have uh, some time to be still and reflect on God's word. Stand with me.
Savior who is not only a Savior, but he is King of all things, the King of all creation. He set aside his crown, his glory, to come to this earth to rescue his bride. Amen. I'm forgetting. Are you hurting, broken, sick? 